Got time for a quick story? Frankie Previtt is more influential in your musical life than you think. Frankie Previtt is the Frankie in Frankie and the Knockouts. They had a hit in 1981, Sweetheart. However, his biggest hits are as a writer. He was the writer of I've Had the Time of My Life and Hungry Eyes from Dirty Dancing. He's been a writer for others as well, but those are two of his best-known songs. And I got the chance to talk to Frankie Previtt in 2018 and again in 2019. In 2018, it was on the occasion of a re-release of Frankie and the Knockouts music from the early 1980s and also about some of his other activities. About the same time, Christmas song of his writing was coming out called Merry Christmas, Everybody. Fast forward to 2019, and that song has now been recorded by a couple Canadian artists, Vivace and Mark Masri. So, for this edition of Got Time for a Quick Story, I thought I would combine the two interviews. We're going to actually go in reverse order. We're going to start with the interview from 2019, primarily talking about Merry Christmas, Everybody. And after that... We'll segue to the interview from 2018, where he talks about his life and time in Frankie and the Knockouts and writing the songs for Dirty Dancing and more. In this edition of Got Time for a Quick Story, our chat with Frankie Previtt and Merry Christmas, everybody. We thought we would talk to Frankie about this song that's now getting some more and more attention. I, I want to go back to when you first wrote this because according to the 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 website on this song it was right. it was courtesy of Christina Aguilera's management and this if i'm doing the math right in 199 circa 1996 this was what post mickey mouse club pre pop stardom <laughs> christina aguilera <laughs> yeah it was it's it's interesting cuz um, obviously uh, as you write a song as iconic as i've had the time in my life uh, you meet a lot of people because of winning a you know Academy Award, etc. And so along the way, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet uh, Christina's management, and they uh, gave me a call. And it was funny; it was two days before Easter, and they said to me, "You know, we're looking for a Christmas song, and can you write Christina a Christmas song?" And I just said, "You know, it's like two days before Easter here," <laughs> and they go, "Well, you know, we got to start early, and we got to." you know, put the word out there. What they didn't tell me was they wanted an up-tempo song, and I wrote a ballad. And so, obviously, they loved the song, but it was the wrong tempo. And so the song, in 1996, when I wrote it, sat in my draw for many, many years. I had some other people sing it. Um, Lisa Sherman sang it uh, for me and a couple of other people. But then when Ken Franklin approached me, in regards to uh, Vivace and, and, and Mark, I said, you know what, this could be the right element to, to redo something with the song. And then we came up with the idea of, because I'm big on this charity stuff, I do that pancreatic cancer for Patrick Swayze with uh, my Dirty Dancing demos. And I said, um, we need a charity for this. And what, what a perfect charity, but Toys for Tots. So a, a big portion of, of the revenue uh, from this song goes to Toys for Tots. And if I would love for your fans to just go to radiotv.com and take a listen to this song and 
what better time than to uh, take a song and make a child smile at Christmas time? It's a it's it's a nice flow to the melody. It, it, in the melody, it's got this kind of nice. Um, it's almost like it's in a in a. a Quick-paced waltz, yet as a ballad, is kind of maybe how I would very preliminarily describe it without getting into too much detail of the, of the song analysis. So describe when you were writing this, and obviously you're writing this in in spring, and you're writing this not knowing how, how the management's going to take this, but you know you need to write a Christmas song. What was your approach? Right. What do you remember 23 years ago of putting pen to paper or however you write and creating Merry Christmas, everybody? Again, you know, I... I'm a lyricist melody. I write ly- melody actually first and then lyric. And so I'm writing usually with another person, uh, either a keyboard player or a guitar player. And so I called up uh, my cousin, Dusty McCallie, who I had written some Cindy Lauper songs for and with and um, some movie themes with him. And I said, you know what? He might be the, the perfect guy to you know give me a piece of music that might inspire me and he did he sent me the music exactly how you hear it and once again you know in me and my songwriting craziness uh, i start jamming melody and sometimes that melody uh within that melody phonetic sounds come out and and uh, lyrics sometimes pop up and uh i'm recording all of this and so merry christmas everybody came out of me and that was the song Mark Masri and Vivace are uh, some some bigger names involved, as I mentioned earlier on. How did the process go to get the demo over to them, and how did they decide, well, we want to sing on this song? Well, again, um, the conduit to all that was Ken Franklin. Now, Ken, back in the day, was a promotion man for Millennium Records, which was the label that Frankie and the Knockouts was on. And he was uh, part of helping promote Sweetheart, which was our first top 10 single. And he always kind of swore to himself, even said to me, you know, I was many years later, I'm watching TV and there you are on the Academy Awards. I'm saying to myself, damn it, I knew I was right about that group and this guy. And someday I'm going to work with him again. So he called me and just said, I got a group and do you have a song? And so I sent him Merry Christmas, everybody. And he presented it to them. And they had a guy that was working with them, Roy Tan, was kind of like a David Foster clone. And, a, you know, he's kind of a prodigy, kind of a, a ranger singer. And he sent me the track without any vocals on it. And I was like, my God, this sounds like David Foster produced this. <laughs> and he goes, well, that's, that's, my favorite, you know, songwriter, arranger, producer. And so uh, we talked about, you know, how how are we going to approach this? And I said, so there's four people, and why don't we make it a conversation where, you know, imagine four people standing around a fireplace in a log cabin, and somebody's at a Christmas tree, and one of the girls are decorating the tree, and they're they're kind of singing the song to each other, and in a conversation way, somebody sitting on a couch. And so they went, you know what? That is a really cool image. Let's try to, you know, put something like that together. I think they nailed it. When you write a song 
and this could this could go back towards and again when you were writing for well Cindy Lauper, but of course also the Dirty Dancing material and a whole lot of others we've talked about before. You're kind of putting your baby out into the world, and you don't necessarily. Sometimes you don't know who's going to end up singing. Sometimes it's intentional, but sometimes it's just to, to right. go out there. With this particular song, this seems to be more of the latter. Was this kind of, kind of ultimately the way you were hoping it would go to end up with this particular arrangement and with these particular artists singing this song this way? Um, yes, you know I, I've always thought the song had a very uh, classic sound to it, like um, like a reminiscent uh, classic Christmas song. That's what I was trying to write, something that would last the test of time. And so Michael Lloyd, who produced Time of My Life, when I played it for him, he just looked at me and goes, you know, if this was in a movie, it would become a classic. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, then I did my job, because that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to write a song that you felt like you heard already, and that could become a song that, that, you know, could last the test of time. And, and it seems from all these tastemakers that we're sending it out to, people like you and uh, the head of Disney uh, Films and Michael Lloyd, they're saying the same thing about the song. So we feel that, you know, we have something special, and, and it's a great time of year to share that with Toys for Tots to raise uh, awareness. And I think a, a, a really great way... Uh, we're trying to reach out to people like you and, and different radio stations to help us in that journey by putting it in some kind of rotation and letting the world hear it and judge for themselves, <clears throat> just like Time of My Life. RCA Records and Vestron Films weren't on the same page, and that that song, Time of My Life, was not seeing light of day without the public Within the first two weeks of that movie being out, 300,000 people back-ordered that record without having radio airplay, without having promotion. So it's the power of the public. And when they like something, they make it popular. And I think, you know, if we do that with this song, it really helps out Toys for Tots. Yeah, and and, um, before... Well, and on the point of Taurus Chops, take a little bit tangent here, but you've talked about this being an appropriate time of year, toy toys getting to kids right here at our radio station here in, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. We just wrapped up a big toy drive, an event called Festival of Toys. Any listener in the Eau Claire area obviously knows what we're talking there you about. Go. But that we just raised probably we probably I shouldn't say raised, we acquired the most number of toys we've ever had with this. And we've been doing this for a few years with our station and one of our sister stations goes back into the early two thousands. So it's just been building every year and year. So it's logical. How in particular did you choose Toys for Tots? I mean there's obviously many organizations, but that's one of the first ones that come to mind. So why did you go, All right, let's use Toys for Tots for this? Children. Children at Christmas time need to have a smile on their face. They need to feel loved. They, they need to know that they're cared for. And so a small gesture as a toy or some, something to put a smile on their face is a perfect fit for this song. You mentioned getting the word out about this song to get more, pe- get more attention. Getting syncs with movies or TV specials is probably, I would imagine, is part of the process. That uh, That's a, one of the best ways to get attention to a song nowadays. Uh, are, are there efforts to try to get this involved with a movie? Maybe, I mean, and it's obvious, understandably, maybe late for this year, but to start getting that attention out so 
as we go down the road, because Christmas songs are timeless. They're not. They're not one year and out. Are there right. efforts to get into like you know like a Hallmark movie or a Lifetime movie or a TV special or something like that? You know, you're right on the money. You're right on the money because I've sent it out to uh, Disney, the head of film uh, and music department at Disney, and also to the president of Hallmark, and which you just mentioned, and, and both of those. Uh, places are part of our tastemaker quotes. If you go on the website, radiotv.com, you'll see all the quotes from the different tastemakers, which I consider you one of them. And if you'd like to give us a quote, I'd love to post it. it it's just, um, you know, uh, enough people agree that some, they like something, and that means uh, if we get enough of those people, then, then we have a winner. What are your most favorite slash most in most inspiring Christmas songs. You know, um, Ave Maria is beautiful. I remember my father singing that um, in, in church. Um, uh, you know, there's so many beautiful Christmas songs. She's um, um, White Christmas is a beautiful song. You know, I think of the classics um, of, you know, back in the days in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And and uh, because that's what this song reminds me of. It takes me back to those eras uh, of when um, there was more peace on earth and, and more uh, innocence in the world. And so um, there's too many Christmas classics that I love, so... Hard just to pick one, you know. Silent Night is a beautiful song. So, um, yeah, it's it's just too hard for me just to pick one because I like too many. On our station, we play primarily the classic versions, not necessarily the original, but the classic, most well-known versions of songs. And they're duplicative. I mean, there's like five or six versions of Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, for example. But we play the ones that are our most well-known. And the vast majority mm -hmm. go back from the 40s through maybe the 90s. And then it gets pretty dry after that. It's, there's a lot of Michael Bublé, right. but that's about it after, after right. the mid-1990s. So obviously you wrote this song, again, a quarter century ago. But what do you think goes into writing a classic Christmas song that can join the oeuvre of of all of these legendary tunes. What what is it more melodic, more more lyrical? Do you find with Christmas music? I think it's both. I think the the melody is important that people can remember it and sing it easily. There's not too much riffing going on, or I call it vocal acrobatics. And then obviously a, a lyric that hits hits your the, the sentimental time of year, love, peace on earth, same words that draw us together as a people and, and give us this sense of togetherness at Christmas time. We've become one a, as a world. And I think that's what makes a classic uh, Christmas song. Do you see yourself writing more Christmas tunes? I mean, if there's a call for it, um, I'd like to see... Uh, where this one takes me, um, because uh, I think if it finds its way to a, a Disney or a Hallmark movie, that it will have its its own uh, place and time. In the in 
go back over to your other projects in the last year since we talked to you. Of course, I was right in right about the time that the Frankie and the Knockouts collection was right. coming out. What was the, ended up being the reaction to that? I mean, I remember listening through all of those songs and going, "Oh, that sound really awesome." So, what was the reaction of others who have who were fans from back in the day or hadn't heard those songs right. since the early to mid nineteen eighties? Um, it was a really good reaction because I didn't realize how how popular Frankie and the Knockouts was, not only here in the States, but I find, I'm finding out it's in England, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in, in countries that I didn't realize that we were that popular. And the Internet allows you to touch all these places and let them know what you're doing. And so there's this third album we did called Making the Point that really never got heard because Jimmy Einer and Millennium Records closed up shop and sold us to MCA, who thought that we should sound like Night Ranger and had Night Ranger's producer come in and reproduce or uh, remix a track called Outrageous, which radio wasn't ready for. And when that song didn't happen, MCA dropped us. So that that, uh, album never got heard. And so now it gives me a chance to get that third album heard and so we're going to release a song from that third album uh as our single and the neat thing about it is called come rain or shine um we had just gotten off tour with toto and jeff Picara was very close friends with our producer bill schnee and and the whole toto band was and so jeff Picara came in and played on that come rain or shine track and it's funny because Bill Schnee, uh, the reason why he decided to produce us is because he thought we sounded like the East Coast version of Toto. And so to have Jeff play on the track, and and also the song is written in 6-8, which is the same feel as Sweetheart, which was our top 10 single. And so in, in the spring, we'll be releasing Come Rain or Shine off of that record. Very nice. Well, I'll be looking forward to that uh, quote-unquote, uh, uh, kind of a re-release new music, if you will, from Frankie and the Knockouts. That's, that's good Good to see that coming along. You'd also been working on, I believe it was Calling All Divas a year ago. What are you working on right now, besides obviously hoping to get the word out about Merry Christmas, everybody? Right. Well, we had um, done about three or four shows with Calling All Divas. and So what you do is when you're putting a new show together, you have a working title. And um, you kind of see what and how your booking agents are reacting. And the reaction to the show was standing ovations that people were loving the show. But the booking agents came to us and said, we love the show, but you need to change the name. And I said, why? There's too many diva shows out there and you need to change it to something else. So the show is a bit of a musical tribute show. And it has a story in the first act where four girls are competing against each other. And, and the judge, the, win, uh, the winner, uh, is going to be made a big superstar. Well, this guy can't decide who he likes best. So he makes the girls a group called The Unforgettables. And so that's the name of our show, called The Unforgettables now. And the whole second act is a concert of The Unforgettables. 
Very good. So hopefully we'll see that going going around and about. But, of course, Merry Christmas, everybody, is the big one. That's by Vivace and Mark Masri, the singers. Frankie Previtt, of course, uh, one of the two writers of the song. And you'll hear it here a little bit on Greatest Hits 98.1 Christmas. If you're listening on the radio version to this, uh, you'll be coming up here as we get closer to Christmas. Frankie Previtt, thank you so much for talking to us again. We're looking forward to more content coming from you, and we hope to hear this song even more in culture, if you will, as time goes along this holiday season, next holiday season. It it sounds good enough to me to be on a on a nationally televised or nationally what whatever presented movie or TV show. So hopefully it keeps on moving along there. But thank you so much for chatting with us. Well thank you and hopefully um you at your radio station there will uh, put us in your rotation and, and let's see what the people think of it. I know that you play mostly all the standards but I think a tastemaker like you to let people hear new music and kind of get a feeling for, you know, what their opinion is, and it helps Toys for Todd, so that's the good thing. Exactly. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Frankie. Take care and have a very Merry Christmas. You too, and to all of uh, your fans, Merry Christmas, everybody. Well, that was our chat from December of 2019 with Frankie Private about Merry Christmas, everybody. Once again, go to Radio TV. Just as I said it, RadioTV.com. That's where you can purchase a copy of Merry Christmas, everybody. And, of course, a sizable portion of your purchase will go to Toys for Tots. Now we'll have our interview with Frankie Private from 2018, an interview I did for Greatest Hits 98.1, my employer here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I record the editions of Got Time for a Quick Story. It's an interview I did about the time that there was a re-release of music from Frankie and the Knockouts. And Frankie talks about his life and talks about the music of Frankie and the Knockouts. It's a really good interview, and you can listen to it right now in part two of this episode of Got Time for a Quick Story with Frankie Previtt. First off, good to talk to you today, Frankie. Uh, you're over in the New York area, I presume, right now? Well, actually, I'm calling you from down the shore over by um, Asbury Park outside of Red Bank, New Jersey. And thanks for having me. You're thanks welcome. It's, me uh, I have to imagine it is warmer than it is here in western Wisconsin right now. It's 20 right now. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, well, we're, we're double that plus, you know. <laughs> That would I, that would be considered a, a, a big warming trend if we had a heat that right wave. Now. There would be a heat wave there. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I we, get it. We would absolutely take it if we could. So, um, what you've you've got the collection coming out, which is, and I looked through the track listing, and you can describe it more for uh, for our listeners and those of us following on Facebook. But it's essentially the the albums of Frankie and the Knockouts all comprised into three CDs plus extra material, live material. Describe especially the extra tracks that are included on this release coming sure. out on Friday. Yeah, those tracks are kind of like a um, bonus tracks for the record on release demos that are kind of part of my musical journey um, through creating um, my different genres of music uh back in 19 you know 74 75 i was in a riff rock band called bull angus that toured with rod stewart and deep purple and fleetwood mac and then as time went on in in the uh 78 79 uh uh, i was signed by buddha records so i was an r&b artist and 
I kind of took those two sounds, uh, the R and B and the and the harder rock, and I created this blue-eyed soul rock and roll band called Frankie and the Knockouts. And in 1981, we had a top 10 single called Sweetheart, which um, a lot of stations and people still play today, and uh, it's a tribute to the song. And uh, the other, the the songs that are these demos are kind of like uh, uh, riff rock, like from Bull Angus. There were songs that we didn't put on a record, so I took one of those demos and songs as an R&B artist, and I took a few of those demos that didn't make a record, and songs that didn't make the knockout records, and then songs after I won the Academy Award for Time of My Life. Actually, Hungry Eyes was written before I won the Academy Award for the next Frank in the knockout record, and um, so that, you know, that was part of my, my travels to the Academy Awards, and this, these are are the journey that I took as a songwriter from back in the 70s to the present day. Let's go back to the very, very early days of your life. And my understanding is you have a musical uh, genealogy of sorts. Describe how your your first, what we, if I heard correctly in a, in a recent interview, your first performance was kind of, I guess, unscheduled with your father? Yeah, it's a funny story. My dad was an opera singer um, and uh, used to sing in the house all the time. And I would listen to him and admire him. And so my mom took me to one of his concerts at the convention hall. And uh, I remember sitting on my mom's lap and, and hearing all these people coughing. And then all of a sudden, the, you know, my father started singing Paiachi and he went to hit the big high note and me as a youngster remembering him rehearsing i knew that note was coming so i stood up in my chair and i belted the note right before my father and the whole place went crazy and my father stopped and he looks into the audience and he points and he goes my son and so i say you know what i consider that my first gig (laughs) at what point did you know you wanted to make a career of music was there ever another option for you or are you thinking i i'm going to be a singer well you know i started different groups when i was a kid my father used to have me out as a 10 year old raising money for charities singing in these charity events and singing these italian songs you know for mario lanza be my love and and uh, love is a many splendor thing and all this stuff that a 10 year old would have no idea what the hell was going on and then uh, 13 years old, I started a, like an a cappella group, like a Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. So it was, you know, me and, and a couple of other guys. And then as time went on, um, you know, I'm, I'm 15, 16 years old. I got signed to London Records as an artist. And, um, you know, you, you kind of start to get this, you know, genetic pool, you know, kind of the seed that grows within you because of your parents. And um, I remember sitting in my in my living room and my parents had these college colleges come over and showing films of what college would you like to go to? And I'd be drifting out the window. I'm like 17 years old. And the one guy says to me, son, you haven't watched the film at all. You know, what's going on? What do you want to be? And I just said, I want to be a singer. That's what I want to be. I don't want to go to school. 
Hmm. And he goes, well, you better talk to your parents because they're about to waste a lot of money. Well, my parents were like, you know what? You go to school and you can be anything you want to be. Just go to school and get your education. So the day of my graduation, four years later, I didn't even go to graduation. I was on the road with a rock and roll band. And, you know, the kind of the rest is history. Huh. So how did you get that first deal at age 15, 16? How does the discovery process work at that point when you're working with, you know, coming up with a group here, coming up with a group there? How do you kind of get discovered, for well, lack of a better term? Uh, my, yeah, my cousin and I, Joey, Joey Alessi, uh, sang together a lot, and we just had, you know, you know, a lot of moxie, and um, we went over to London Records, and we knocked on the door, and there was this guy named Scott English, and we said that, you know, we were a singing team, and my cousin, he goes, okay, sit down and sing me something, and there was a piano in the room, and my cousin started playing, and we sang a song called What's Your Name by Don and Juan. And uh, we, we, he, he just listened to our voices, and he was like, and you guys are really good singers, and uh, here's two or three songs. I want you to learn them. I want you to put a band together, and I want you to go record them. So you know, it was just us, you know, banging on doors, hmm. two kids. Eventually, and that's how, it, that's how it happened for us. And eventually you were in the Oxford Watch Band. Uh, d- d- Describe the nature of that band. We'll get into Bolangus in just a little bit. But so, how, what does the process go to get into that group? It's kind of the first step here as we start to go through bands here in your career. Yeah. Well, after college, you know, all through college, I was, you know, playing in bands and and being very popular on campus because everybody wanted our bands to play at their fraternity parties. And so, when I came home, I I wanted to get in a band. And um, I, I started looking at this local rag called um, magazine or newspaper called The Aquarian. And in The Aquarian, there was this ad looking for a lead singer, this band called the Oxford Watch Band. And they were playing a club in New York called The Cheetah. And um, right now, The Cheetah is kind of where stu- uh, is uh, on 54th Street over by SIR Studios. Hmm. And... Um, so I went to hear this band at the Cheetah, and I, I kind of sat there and listened to them. And they were so far left of where I was, you know, because I was in a kind of an R&B horn band doing Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and and uh, Wilson Pickett songs, you know. And, and so they were doing uh, Moby Grape and also Sprock Zarathustra, which <laughs> was uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And they were had all of this psychedelic stuff going on. I was like, wow, this is a really out there band, but they they sound incredible. So I, you know, talked with the the, the manager, the, and uh, he said, well, why, why don't you come down tomorrow and, and audition? So I went the next day and I auditioned, and they were looking for a lead singer who could play a horn. And uh, I had just picked up saxophone and played it very little. And um, they started naming songs. Can you sing this Moby Grape song? Can you sing that this uh, Electric Flag song? And I was like, no. And they said, well, what can you sing? And I said, um, try a little tenderness from Otis Redding. And they said, okay, we know that song, so let's do it. So I sang Try a Little Tenderness, and they looked at me and said, you're in the band. 
And uh, I said, okay. I said, I don't play sax very well. Don't worry about it. This other sax player in the band is going to work with you, and you just have to play a little bit of parts. You don't have to solo or anything. So from that, they they taught me and how to play sax, and then I learned how to play flute and recorder, and I fronted that band with another uh, singer who his name was Benny Graham. And Benny Graham was Lou Graham's brother. Really? From Farner, yes. And so he would say to me, man, my brother loves the way you sing it. You know, would you come and hear my brother sing? And his brother was in a band called Black Sheep. And this band actually lived in Rochester, New York. And uh, I said to him, I'd love to hear your brother sing. I said, but we work all the time. The next time I heard his brother sing was in Farner. Hmm. Lou Graham. Wow. And so that that was my travels of Bull, uh, of uh, Oxford Watchman, and from that band, the drummer and I, Gino Charles, started Bull Angus with a band that we had heard in Poughkeepsie, New York, and uh, we took three or four of those guys from that band, and the manager from Oxford Watch Band gave us some money to live in a farmhouse, and we lived in that farmhouse, and for about three months every day rehearsed like eight hours a day and wrote songs and uh, what happened was Vinny uh, there was a guy who produced this Oxford Watch Band well, Oxford Watch Band actually had a record deal on Capitol Records and that band lived in Long Island for quite a while and we recorded there and nothing ever really happened with that record but we found that producer that produced that band and he came on board to Bull Angus, and um, within weeks we had a deal with Mercury Records, and uh, went on tour with Rod Stewart, and then on tour with Deep Purple, and then we went out with Fleetwood Mac, and then we played this festival in nineteen in the early seventies uh, called the Pocono Mountain Festival with three hundred thousand people. It was a three day festival. It was kind of like Woodstock a couple of years later. So that was my my journey of getting into bowling and starting Bolangus. What musically did you learn from those performances? Being in again, you mentioned like a a third of a a third of a million people at at one festival and being on tour with with these names. And I know what in Fleetwood Mac, I presume this was in their in the, the pre Buckingham Knicks era of the group, but still Fleetwood Mac had already established themselves. Sure. sure, by that point, as a blues rock band. What, what did yep. you learn from these guys? Well, you know, what you learn um, is that, especially like going on tour with Rod Stewart, you know, I stood on the side of the stage. There's no, like, school of rock back, you know, back in the day. So the school of rock for me was watching every move that Rod Stewart made or, or did on stage and watching these performers perform and going, okay, that was really cool how he did that or how he talked to the audience. And you kind of incorporate that and make it your own. And, and, you know, the way you handle yourself on stage, you become a a performer by watching these other performers and and learning from the pros how they do it and why they, you know, became popular. You know, Rod Stewart, you know, would, would come in and, you know, to our dressing room or to a party, a press party. And, you know, we had a rough time tonight. You know, the crowd was, wasn't was really into us that well. And I said, 
you had a rough time. I said, we're a brand new band. Nobody knew a song, one song that we were doing. He goes, yeah, but we all got to start somewhere, mate, don't we? Hmm. So, you know, it was kind of a, my learning process, my school of rock, you know, of hard knocks. <laughs> was there any point in Bull Angus where the where you almost had the break where that could have been the band for which you were, were most known? Um, possibly. What had happened, we had done two records and we we're getting ready to do a third record. And we just started gelling as songwriters, becoming, you know, a little more, uh, a little less jammy and a little more melodic and, and hook hooky. And um, we were finally maturing as songwriters. And then our manager at the time, um, had a little a bit of a beef with, with the agency, and the agency was really part of why this band was on tour. It was Jeff Franklin from ATI, and um, he, he was uh, really behind us and, and got us all these really great gigs. And for some odd reason, our manager and he had a big tiff, and Jeff said, that's it, I'm not booking the band anymore. And so that band broke up. Uh, because not because the band didn't have what it took, because when we were on stage, the energy that we created, you know, the Schaefer festivals, we played the Madison Square Garden of every town we went to because Rod Stewart was playing the Madison Square Garden and we were his opening act. And so we got a chance to really play in front of 20,000 people a night and and 300,000 people. And so when when you get that kind of energy back from an audience, it changes kind of your life in in the sense of, holy cow, this is what it's really like. And, and it kind of drives you to want to get that again. So that's what it really did for me. Me learning my songwriting craft really came when I signed to Buddha Records as an R&B artist. I had this producer... Uh, Tony Camillo, who produced me. And Tony um, produced um, Gladys Knight and Frida Payne and Barry Miles and all of these like major R&B artists um, in his basement in, in um, Bellmead, New Jersey. He had this state-of-the-art studio, and he did Midnight Train to Georgia down in his studio. And I would sit there as an artist and watch him conduct an orchestra, arrange songs, do background parts and write them instantaneously. And so my, my arranging and writing chops really, you know, were, were accelerated by Tony Camillo and, and me going to that school, you know, of watching and learning and, and becoming from a rock singer to learning how to become a crooner and then taking those two elements and creating this soulful rock band, Frankie and the Knockouts, in 1981. How did that transition go from rock, from, I mean, I, I know Bolangas has been described as, in some cases, heavy metal, some cases progressive rock, and I know the, the, the definitions were a little lucid, and, or loose, I should say, back in the, in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah this, that, that group was really, we called that group Riff Rock. We weren't really heavy metal. We we didn't really, but we were loud. So, you, you know, we were as loud as some metal bands, but we played riff rock. Mm -hmm. and, and so the song that's on 
the, the, the new box that I'm putting out is kind of a lighter side of Bull Engus in, in our third album attempt to write a commercial song. So there's a song called Sweet Marmalade. And Sweet Marmalade is really just this funky riff. You know, and, and um, you know, me jamming over top of it. And all our songs came out of our jams. You know, we, we would get all, you know, buzzed up and, and, you know, go rehearse for eight hours. And the roadies would keep us that way. Mm-hmm. And, and we would just jam. And then from those jams, I would take segments of those jams and just write songs. How did the, and, then did you essentially become... I guess signed as an R&B artist, as described, was did you kind of want to go more into that direction? Was that part from that third album approach of writing stuff that was a little more hook-ish, maybe a little more I don't want to say commercial per se, but going more in a in, in a in that direction, a more melodic direction? Is that yeah. what led to that solo signing? Well, what what kind of um, what the impetus of of that whole signing was that when I moved back home after Bull Angus broke up, um, a girl that I had dated in college <clears throat> married the president of Buddha Records, Art Cast, hmm. and her name was Lynn Coolthaw. And Lynn Coolthaw, uh, I bumped into her, and she says, "What are you doing now? Where are you singing?" And I said, well, um, you know, I just broke, the band broke up and I just moved back home and I got, you know, an apartment. Uh, my parents had this apartment house, a uh, two-family house, and they gave me an apartment downstairs so I could continue to do my career. And I was selling cars out of my driveway to make money to kind of take my voice lessons and stuff. So she said, you know, my, I married Art Cass. And I said, who's Art Cass? And he, he's the president and owner of Buddha Records. And he's got to hear you sing. So Art Cass said, okay, let me turn you on to Tony Camillo. And he's, a, you know, because Gladys Knight, I guess, was on his label. And he goes, he'll let me know if you're a good singer. So I went and sang for Tony. And Tony went, give this kid a deal. He's really good. And so anytime I wrote a rock song, Tony would put it in the draw. Anytime I wrote an R&B song, we'd go record it. Okay. And so being that Buddha Records was an R&B label, um, you know, they they wanted me to be this, you know, white guy who could sing soul music. Okay. And, and so all of a sudden, my, my whole style of writing, I, I started looking for players that could, you know, play guitar funky as opposed to harder. And, and I liked it, but, you know, when I tried to play that style of music out, I was so used to the rock stuff. I was like, you know what, I'm not, I don't feel the energy that I want that I'm used to. You know, I'm just not feeling this. And so then I started, you know, writing more of the rock stuff. And, and you know, Buddha was like, no, 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 that's, that's not where we want to go. And I just said, you know what, this isn't for me. I, I, I want to be a little, I want to have this rock and roll feel back in my life because that's when I perform, that's what get, gets me off. But also I started finding players that could play more Rocky and then adding another R&B player in it. So it would have the crunch, but yet I would have that little funky undertone. And that's what's strange. That, oh, go ahead. No, that that's kind of the culmination of those pieces 
created what what the sound is. Because listening through the first Frankie and the Knockouts album, it, it definitely would be I would describe it as like a, a rock band with a, with a bit of the smoother edge. If they're musically, what comes to mind, and I and I know. You've, you've described Sweetheart and the process of that being released as the first song. How does that peg you as like more of a pop band than necessarily a rock band? But if you listen through all the tracks on the album, right. there, there's more of an edge. Not, it's not a completely 180 sound, but but still with that sort of, like like you said, a bit of an R&B influence, a bit of a smoother influence. And it sounds like you nailed exactly what you were looking for in that first album. Yeah, I mean, uh, your first album is probably, you know, you can call it your greatest hits album because it took you, you know, from the time you were a kid to your first album to write songs. And so you have a, a truckload of songs you're bringing to the table and you're picking out your best 12 songs. Whereas your second album, you're on a tour bus and you're writing songs on the tour bus and you're trying to pump out a second record. But the good news about being on a tour bus and writing songs is you get a chance as you get an encore, you know, you you break out one of your new songs and you try it on an audience. And I can remember singing uh, Never Had It Better. Um, and it didn't even have lyrics. I was just singing, let's get it together. And and I was making up words as, you know, that because it was a jam and I had a melody, and but no lyrics. And people would, you know, applaud at the end. And I was like mumbling words that didn't make any sense. But, you know, you, you get the feeling from an audience, oh, yeah, I, I need to finish this song because it musically was getting people off. Now I just need to, like, lock in the right lyrics. And I wrote Never Had It Better mm-hmm. for the second record. And in the creation of these songs, and I'm going to go to, right to the hit, to the, to the big one. Sweetheart, at any time I hear it on the radio or, for, or if, like, the video comes up on, on YouTube or, or something like that, it's one of the few songs where I'll stop and listen as to as much of it as I can. It it, it still holds. And I actually did, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I was three at the time, so I, I I missed it on the radio when it was initially out. But when I first heard it right. about a decade later on the radio, I went, oh, okay. I started paying attention to the song. Sure. And what's always, what I, struck me about it is it seems to be... And see if I'm on the right track with this. It's a it's a combination of a bit of that neo '50s sound that you heard in like Toby Bowes, Angel Baby, and Walter mm-hmm. uh, Walter Egan's Magnet and Steel. A little of that, and then I hear some Toto influence in it as well. Kind of the the passing chords, the half step chromatic chords, and in, in the verses. And I, it sounds like a combo of both. It, right. Is that kind of what the approach was musically in putting that song together? You know, it, it does have the simplistic chord changes of, of those songs that you talked about. And, and it does have that in the chorus where I go to the falsetto. So you have that, you know, little bit of um, the Frankie Valley falsetto, the remnants, the reminders of, of the, you know, of years past. So, yeah, it's all part of my influence of me growing up as, you know, I was a big, big Rascals fan. You know, so, you know, they influenced me. Uh, the Righteous Brothers influenced me. You know, groups like that, and obviously R&B bands. But, you know, talking about Sweetheart, uh, when when I did the third record, the Making the Point record, I said to myself, Sweetheart was was really a real 
good song for us that was a stepping stone that, to open doors for radio and, and, and people to embrace the band. So uh, on the third record, there's a song called Come Rain or Shine mm-hmm. that's in the same feel as Sweetheart. And we had just finished uh, touring with Toto. And so Jeff, Jeff Picara, uh, God, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. um, played drums on that one track. And it was, for me, the next Sweetheart. That MCA records, because we got sold from Millennium to MCA, I kept saying to them, listen to this song. Radio will, will embrace this song because it's kind of like Sweetheart. And they decided to go with Outrageous because they thought that, well, you know what? We, we're going to get Night Ranger's producer, and we're going to take this one song, and we're going to you know, have him produce this one song, and we're going to put it out as a single. I said, radio will not embrace Frankie and the Knockouts as Night Ranger. You have Night Ranger on your label. Don't do that. Listen to this song. And they never did. And, you know, obviously they put out the the uh, outrageous song and radio was like, eh, this is, doesn't sound like Frank in the knockout. So, no, we're not going to play it. And then they dropped us. But uh, that song, another song called One Good Reason and Blame It on My Heart. Those three songs are part of the journey of Frankie and the Knockouts. Uh, of what I've talked about with R&B, soul, and, and rock and roll. What would you say are your favorite Frankie and the Knockouts songs? Um, you know, obviously Sweetheart was a big hit for me. I can't say it's um, my favorite song. Um, there, there's a song on the first record called uh, One for All. Mm-hmm. That that I like a lot. Um, Annie goes Hollywood. I really like a lot. Um, on the second record, you know, without you was our hit, but uh, never had it better. And um, you're uh, you're just what I want is a really really good rock and roll songs. And then um, again on on the third record, I would say there's uh, you don't want me like I want you. Come rain or shine. Blame It On My Heart and One Good Reason are, are the songs to really listen to on that record. Okay. And then, the, the was there a, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but was there a, a fourth album that was going to be worked on and then the band dis- disbanded and those are the, some of the extra tracks that are going into this collection? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and one, and one of those songs that you're talking about was Hungry Eyes, mm-hmm. which ended up in Dirty Dancing. Had that album, had, had the band stayed together, had you had a record deal, had you gotten that album out, when would that album have been released? Was there? Did you guys like have a schedule or something? That album probably would have came out around 1985, 86, in, the, in that era, depending on, because uh, 84 is when the third record came out, and depending on how that record, if, if I had stayed on Millennium RCA Records and Jimmy Einer, who was the president of the VAT label, uh, did what he did for me on the first two albums, that third album probably would have been our biggest album. Hmm. Hmm. So then- and, and from that, you know, then Hungry Eyes would have lived on as a Frankie and the Knockout song. There's also a song on the demo reel 
<clears throat> as uh, the bonus tracks called um, Beat of a Broken Heart. And that was also written for uh, the Frankie and the Knockout record. Also a song called Desperately uh, was written for the Frankie and the Knockouts record. And then I wrote a, a couple of songs with uh, a band after Frankie Knockouts broke up and after uh, I won the Academy Award, I put a band together for a very short time with Kazim Sultan from Todd Rundgren's band and Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band. Yeah. And it was called Brave, Brave New World. And the song is called uh, On Their Imaginary Line. And and we, we started trying to get into political statements about who we are as people and black and white and we're all the same and, and kind of making a, a, a bit of more of a statement about, you know, uh, the human race. Hmm. So 1986, we're in, in this period between the end of Frankie and the Knockouts and before the, the legendary story of, of Jimmy, Jimmy Iannard t- contacting you about about writing that song for Dirty Dancing and that whole right. process. So what are you working on in, in this year? What's your project now that, that the knockouts are done? Um, I, uh, I put together a um, uh, kind of a, uh, it's a stage play, but it's a concert that kind of run into each other. And uh, it's entitled Calling All Divas. And it's about four different girls at different ages in their career one one is a um uh an older gal in her 50s who's uh, an ex broadway star and and rockhead and and then another one is um a blues singer who sings in harlem and another one is a, a girl a country singer and and the last girl is an actual subway singer and and she you know um th- those four girls in the first act compete against each other to win the favor of this guy who's going to only break one of them and make one of them the next superstar. And so you travel with this young guy, this guy, Frankie, the songwriter, as he's trying to find this next superstar for his boss. And so he goes to Harlem and he's in a, and you're in a blues club. I have all this like, uh, projection going on so it feels like you're in a club and then you're 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 in a recording studio and you're listening to this other girl sing and then you're in the subway and you you find this young girl singing in a subway and the the last girl is a country singer and you're in this funky country bar and so he finds all these four girls and he brings them to his boss and they sing for him and they all sound so good he's like I can't pick one of them. I don't know. I don't. I don't know which one to pick. He goes, but only one of them's going to make it. And so the second act opens up, and he goes, "Well, I guess you're wondering who I picked, and there was only one true winner. And I told you there would only be one winner. And so tonight he he introduces the winner, and the winner is he makes them all a group called the Unforgettables. And the whole second act is a concert of the Unforgettables." And that, and it's calling all divas. And so that's what I'm working on. I got backing from the guys who uh, produce Jersey Boys, and we'll be doing gigs, um, you know, theaters like in Pittsburgh, and a theater in Philly, and then a theater over here uh, in Red Bank, New Jersey, the Count Basie Theater or the Keswick Theater, and that's the kind of uh, show it is. And 
what's kind of cool about it is that you can take the unforgettables and if you wanted to play like a casino that says, well, you only have 75 minutes, you can't do the two-hour show, we can take the unforgettables and, and they can just go perform the second act. How, so, how far do you hope to take calling all divas around the country again? I know it's, it's mainly northeastern locations, northeastern United States, but do you hope to get to the well, – I think I heard Chicago at one point, hopefully, but it's maybe getting up here towards the – we're east of the Twin Cities, but up in that, that area of the country? You know, it's where as the brand builds, as as the show gets some legs to it, and and uh, there are theaters, we're we're going to hit the the secondary markets. We're going to stay away from trying to be a Broadway play. We're, we are going to places like Pittsburgh and and you know um, Naples, Florida, and places that don't get saturated with with a lot of uh, great great talent and the four singers that i picked and when i tell you that they are unbelievable they they all in their own rights could have their own show mm-hmm. and, and you know they're jaw-dropping good singers well there's a nice so you know even though they're not superstars when they sing together you're like oh my god are these girls good hmm Wow. I, I mean, I can tell you we have a new performing arts center that just opened up here in our city here in Eau Claire just a few months ago, and it's it's supposed to be able to hold musicals and, and such. So maybe that might be a place to come. We'd love to have Calling All Divas come around here based on what based on the based on the storyline. Yeah, it's you know, it's empowering women. These four girls, even though they compete against each other, they all of a sudden start to realize that they're stronger together and they start rooting for each other and helping each other especially the young girl, because in the be- in the beginning, she's really shy, and-, and the other girls are, like, looking at this Frankie character, like, well, what's she doing here? Well, I heard her sing in the subway. She was awesome. And the, and the black girl goes, in the subway? You know, crazy people sing in the subway. Mm-hmm. You know, and he goes, no, she's awesome. I'm telling you, she's awesome. And then she drifts off by herself, and she starts playing You've Got a Friend on the piano and singing by herself. And the other girls, like, look at each other and go, oh, my God, listen to her. And they gather around the piano, and they do You Got a Friend in four-part harmony. Nice. It's really, really beautiful. There's also a new recording I that's not on the box set, but I heard it. It's a, it's a, record, a new recording of I've Had the Time of My Life. Uh, what, that, that is, yeah, that is with uh, one of the divas. That is with uh, Lisa Sherman. And uh, she's in the Calling All Divas show. And so um, I had a chance to, uh, John D. Nicola, who I wrote the song with, said, why, why don't you come in and, and um, you know, bring one of the divas, bring Lisa in, and, and let's, uh, let's do a version of Time of My Life. So, you know, that was a one-day wing it, you know, go in there and, and uh, record the song. And I think we did a pretty good job for, you know, for the amount of couple of hours that we had. The demo of that uh, of, of the song going back to the 1980s that was released, the Dirty Dancing demos, and I remember when that came out about 2010, and for seeing that and hearing about how it it, it was going towards the cause of fighting pancreatic cancer, and I I immediately downloaded it because I went, oh, I get to because I've always been fascinated by demos and the 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 the, the early days of of particular songs, the genesis of certain songs, and right. so I I. I I, apparently, I helped out a little bit. My one dollar, however much it cost, went towards a, among the 
other 14,999. So I made, I downloaded that about eight years ago, I think, when that came out. Well, that's awesome because, you know, every, every penny from uh, the uh, Dirty Dancing demo Facebook page I have uh, goes to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And then I'm taking a dollar from every one of these records, these new, this new box set that's coming out on Friday Music. Um, a dollar from every um, uh, box set will go to pancreatic cancer. And it's just in, in Patrick's, uh, Patrick Swayze's uh, memory, uh, when, when I was, had the uh, chance to be fortunate enough to win an Academy Award and Patrick was there, he had asked me, you know, who sang the song? Or, you, know, uh, you know, tell me about the song. And I was like, what's so important about the song? He goes, we had listened to 149 songs and we filmed out of sequence. So we filmed that last scene first and we hated this movie because we didn't have the, the final song. And your cassette was the 150th cassette on the day we filmed. And we all like listened to it and went, we're making the movie to that song. And he goes, so I'm, when I'm dancing and when I'm singing, it's to you and that girl. And I said, yeah, that was Rochelle Capelli. He goes, at the end of the day, after we filmed that day, we just look, looked at each other and went, oh, my God, what just happened? Let's go make a movie. Uh-huh. And, and so he said, the next day we filmed The Hungry Eyes with you singing Hungry Eyes. He goes, it changed our whole camaraderie that we, we hated the movie to loving the movie because of that last scene. So, you know, to me, it was like, wow, the power of music, you know, the power of music. What what project were you working on when Jimmy Iyner called to say uh, he had the Dirty Dancing opportunity for you? Yeah, uh, yeah, his name is Jimmy Iyner. And and when he called me, uh, I was trying to get another deal because he closed his label and MCA dropped us. And there I was writing songs, and I wrote Hungry Eyes, and every record company in the world passed on Hungry Eyes. They didn't think I had anything there. And so when Jimmy called, he said, I got this little you know, movie I need you to write a song for. And I said, Jimmy, I don't have time. I'm trying to get a deal. I'm writing songs here. He goes, make time. It's gonna, this is going to change your life. And I go, yeah, right, you're going to change my life. <laughs> he goes, no, I got a good feeling about this movie. And I said, all right, what, what's the name of the movie? And, and he goes, Dirty Dancing. And I'm thinking, I put my hand on my forehead. I'm going, oh, Jesus, Jimmy's doing porn. <laughs> oh, no. And so I'm, I'm thinking the worst. You know, he goes, no, it's not. It's, it's a good little movie. It's about this girl and, and uh, about this dancer, this young guy. And they're in the Catskills, and the father really doesn't like the kid. And, but they end up together. And it's a really good little love story. And that's all I had. I didn't have a script. I didn't really have much to go by. But when I called John Nicola, the guy I wrote Hungry Eyes with, and told him about we have a chance to write this song, but it's going to be a long song because the scene is seven minutes, we should start the song with the chorus up front in halftime and then downbeat the verse and, and uh, double time the verse. And uh, so I got the track. I'm driving in my car on the Garden State Parkway, exit 140, going, Nin and I'm of my life, Nin and I'm of my life. What the hell am I saying? And I'm scribbling time of my life on an envelope on the parkway. 
And really, truthfully, the man upstairs wrote the rest of the song because I had no idea what that movie was about. Huh. Yeah. How quickly did that? I mean, did the rest of the words start coming to you while you're while you're still driving, or did you sit down with with a little bit you had and and then it kind of flowed from there? I, 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 you know, I record everything when I jam, and when I jam, you know, those phonetic sounds come out of me, and and usually it kind of lets me know maybe what the song is going to be about. So I'm nin and I'm of my life. Or, you know, I'm nin and I'm of my life. Oh, I had the time of my life. And so it gave me like that little, you know, chorus. And so when I, I, I went home and I started, you know, writing lyrics and then rewriting lyrics and then rewriting, it takes me about five or six rewrites. And then finally I come up with some lyrics and I go in the studio and I throw a rough vocal down and I send it out, you know, and I send it to them. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. So I thought I didn't get the gig. And, you know, Kenny Ortega, who was the choreographer, and, and Emil Ardolino, who was the director, called me. And I didn't know these guys from Adam, you know, and all of a sudden they're screaming on the other end of the phone, you got it, you did it, man, you did it. And I'm like, what the hell, who is this and what did I do? You know, what's going on here? And they said, we just filmed the, the last scene and it, it, it just kills and, and it made this movie and you did it, that that song did it. And I go, great, you know, and I had no idea what the filming was like or what was going on until I saw it in the movie theater. Hmm. You oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, <laughs> you. <laughs> you. You've done so much music, obviously, over, over the decades, and you're still an active artist. What, of everything you're doing from, from back in the 60s, back from, from Oxford Watch Band, all the way to Calling All Divas and anything else you're working on, what do you most... I, I guess maybe most proud of, or what? What do you consider your mo- your strongest legacy as an artist? Well, you know, as an entertainer, as a young kid, um, your dream is maybe one day that you'll hear hear one of your songs on the radio, and then you know the dream after that happens, your dream is well maybe one day I'll get nominated for a Grammy, and that was the dream. You know, maybe one day that'll happen for me. And then to, in in the same year, to win an Academy Award, a Golden Globe, ASCAP Song of the Year, Most Played Song of the World, and then um, be selected as one of America's top 25 songwriters to represent the United States, to write with the top Russian songwriters and go to Russia with Barry Mann and Mike Stoller and Cindy Lauper and Desmond Child. And, uh, you know, all, all of these other great songwriters that, uh, that are just powerhouse songwriters. So I, I lived beyond my dream. So, um, you know, winning an Academy Award and, and having all that happen to me is still, you know, a, a, it's like almost a fantasy that it, this happened to me. And I look back at it and go, little Frankie Previs from New Brunswick, New Jersey. Holy cow. Hmm. This happened. So if I can dream and keep my dream alive, I didn't win an Academy Award until I was 40. So, you know, I kept writing and dreaming and and never gave up on the dream. So I think 
that that's the one thing that that uh, and and having parents that supported me and telling me never to give up. So w- without them and and without you know l- allowing me to dream, then I I wouldn't be here talking to you about this. What do you have planned? After Calling All Divas, do you have other musical projects in mind, or is that just your focus right now? Yeah, that's that's my main focus is getting this show up and running because I, I have investors that have you know given me money to really do a first class job of getting this show up on and on the road. <clears throat> We've done it like four times already, and and to standing room uh, and encores. So I, I know we have something good. Um, and, and it's because of the of the girls and how good they sing and the songs that we've picked. And I'll probably add a few more original songs into this show. So and I, I come out at the end and they, they kind of say, and there, guess what? We have uh, a little secret for you. There really is a Frankie who wrote, you know, some great songs and he's here with us tonight. And so this Frankie Young Kid songwriter is really me you know, looking for my next voice to sing my song. And so I come out and I sing Time of My Life with all all the girls. Hmm. Well, there's a lot that's going on for you right now. Of course, three days from as we're taping this interview is when Frankie and the Knockouts, the complete collection, arrives. Make sure if you're watching this or listening to this interview, go buy it, go listen to it, stream it, however however you're able to access it. Listen through the whole thing. I know I will be when I when I get the opportunity, and then of course calling all divas, starting off more more further out east right now from where we're at, but hopefully going around the, around the country. I, for I, I can I can remember when Dirty Dancing was everywhere back in late '87 and into 1988, and you're a big part of the reason for that, obviously. So it was an honor to get to talk to you, Frankie Previtt. Uh, thanks for all the work you've done, and uh, we hope to hear more from you as the years go along. Luke, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, man. That was a good interview there with Frankie Previtt. The first chat I had with Frankie Previtt back in November of 2018. Of course, the first part of this episode of Got Time for a Quick Story was from December of 2019. Talking about Merry Christmas, Everybody, his Christmas song sung by Bavace and Mark Masri. Again, you can download it if you go to radiotv.com. That's radiotv.com. Good portion of the proceeds of sales of the single will go to Toys for Tots. Of course, you can also learn more about Frankie Previtt on Facebook. This has been the latest edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I record the episodes. And all of these interviews can be heard at the Greatest Hits 98.1 website. Go to interviews and you can listen to each interview. You interview, you can listen to the one from 2018 that you just heard. You can hear the one from 2019 at the beginning of this episode and a whole bunch of other artist interviews as well. You can hear this podcast at a lot of the usual places via Apple, Android, Stitcher, Spotify. Make sure you subscribe to Got Time for a Quick Story so you get notifications of new episodes. And also make sure you rate it, and preferably highly so, so more people will learn about Got Time for a Quick Story. I'm Luke Anthony.